Hi, welcome to episode 90 of How to Wow. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being music food superstar and motorcar festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org, carfest.org that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guest hosts and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Brydon, Jimmy Carr, Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, the actual village people Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reapy, The Happy Pair, Melanie Sykes, The Feelings, Sophie Ellis Baxter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles, and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday weekend. All right, from that very event, let's cue a conversation, a fascinating conversation. Starring Charlie Higson and Francesca Simon, discussing on the author's stage at last year's Carfest their lives and recently published books, judging the 500 words competition with the BBC and myself, Chris Evans. Francesca Simon is also, of course, known for Horrid Henry and Charlie Higson, known for many things, in amongst them, the young James Bond. Okay. Hello, how are we guys? Are we well? Oh, good. I am so glad. Well, listen, we are going to have such fun here. Uh, they're here already, in fact, before I in- introduce them, which is great. Come and take a seat. We kind of got an introduction, didn't we? Francesca Simon, everyone, first of all. And Charlie Higson as well. So we have an absolute treat for you today. Uh, firstly, uh, welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here. Um, you, I like how much space you've got between each other. Sorry for wrecking your introduction. It's all right. It was only going to hype you up, but I'll do it throughout the introduction now. Okay. It's fine. It was only... Oh, they won't even know who we are now. Oh, of course they do. Of course they do. I mean, you know who these guys are, right? You know, exactly. See, that's, they're here to see you. That's exactly what it is. Um, well, oh, firstly, sorry, it's such an honour, by the way, to have you both here. Um, are you enjoying Carfest so far? It's great. I've never, ever been here before. It was a real shock to see how extensive... I thought there'd be a few of Chris's cars parked <laughs> and maybe the odd tent. I wasn't really prepared for the size of it. I think it's always good when you can say about someone, I think there may be a few of someone's cars parked. I think that's always a good... <laughs> just me up on my bicycle. Um, but no, that's great. And I'm, Charlie, you managed to have a little walk around. I saw you earlier and you had a walk around. Have you enjoyed what you've seen so far? Yes, but the... <laughs> The shameful truth is that neither Francesca nor I have the slightest interest in cars. (laughs) Francesca was just telling me she doesn't even know what type of car her own car is. So it is slightly wasted on us, but no, it was it was fun. I looked at the uh, parade of cars. It is, um, it 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 kind of re- it awakened a stirring within me. So you mean to tell me that I'm not here for the car expert panel? Is that what? That's what you? <laughs> oh, I'm in the wrong place. Um, but honestly, uh, th- before we talk about the incredible things that you've done, um, just on the car fest note, uh, you know Chris from previous encounters, right? Uh, what t- tell us about how you know Chris? <laughs> Well, we are, and it's a shame Frank uh, Cottrell-Boyce couldn't make it as well because Francesca and I and um, Frank and Mallory Blackman, for years we were the judging panel on Chris's 500 words competition that he set up with the BBC, um, which was huge fun. We would get together every year and read these amazing stories written by kids and it was always really inspiring and, and great to get together, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was 
was, it, I was, Charlie and I were just saying, it was like one of the highlights of being an author was getting the chance to read the stories, meet the kids. And then um, Chris got the Duchess of Cornwall involved. So she arranged all these amazing venues. So we would have like the final party, like at Windsor Castle or um, uh, Hampton, Hampton Court. And we were meant to be at Buckingham Palace and then COVID intervened. But yes, I, when Chris asked if I would come today, I said on one condition, and that was that he did not take me on a pub crawl. <laughs> Because after one of the judging sessions, I foolishly went with him. And um, my capacity is like that. He was completely fine. And I thought, I'm not going to live. What you didn't realize is that he said he wouldn't take you on a pub call. Oh, However, no. we're going on no. one. No, yeah, no, no. I said that was my one condition. I would come as long as no pubs. You think no that's pubs. water in there? Because <laughs> <laughs> I am a lightweight. <laughs> oh, well, listen, it's, it's great to have you both here. And, and as you rightly said, it, it's... Um, it's good that we kind of introduce for those that may not uh, know too well about what you guys do. And um, if we start kind of independently, there was obviously meant to be Frank as well here. So um, it's kind of easier with you both being here now in, in a way. It's poor Frank. Um, John, John, yeah, you can speak for Frank if you been, want. <laughs> I don't quite know how we'd have all fitted on this. Uh, yeah, yeah that would have been interesting. Maybe well, we if like I sit each on my other, lap. So. Yeah. Um, but we'll start with you, Charlie. Um, obviously not just a, an incredible author, but you've uh, done acting. You're an actor, you're a comedian, uh, you're a writer for television and, uh, and radio as well. Um, how does writing a book compare to all of those incredible things like comedy, for instance? That's a very big question. <clears throat> I mean, in the end, <clears throat> it does boil down to writing. <clears throat> Everything I've done, apart from when I've been hired by someone else to act in something, has started with either writing a book or writing a script, and it's the same thing. You are using words to try and create a world, tell a story, create characters, and that, and that all has to start with the words. So whether it's comedy or horror or James Bond or whatever... Um, you, 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 it's the same process. I mean, the big difference between writing books and writing scripts is that books is a solitary process. You do it by yourself. You get you do get help from a lot of very clever and important people, but essentially it's just you. Whereas if you're writing a script, you then have to work with a big team of people to make that come alive. It's a it's a it's a blueprint for something. And do you prefer that solitary process or do you prefer working with a big team? Well, it's great to be able to switch between the two because, um, it, you know, it, it, it can get quite lonely. Just yeah, I like the way Charlie out. said, you have to work as opposed to <laughs> you get to work. <laughs> and Francesca, for you, do you prefer that kind of solitary process or does it help you with your creative, creative process? Well, I always thought, because I've always worked by myself, that I liked working by myself. And then um, I've written an opera and oh. a cantata. So I've, um, I've an opera, I wrote an opera based on one of my books that was done at the Royal Opera House. So I worked very closely with the composer and it was so much fun. I loved it. 
I loved the whole thing. And I started to think, why have I spent my whole life working by myself when I could be having all this fun working with somebody else? So if you find, it really depends who you're working with. If you find someone that you're really compatible with, it's incredibly exciting. If you're working with someone and you don't get on, I, it's hard to imagine, well, you know, a worse thing, at least as, I mean, as a writer, you get to make all the decisions. So you have to be accommodating, you know, if you're working with other people, because you're only thinking about yourself. I mean, I always say to the composer, you know, make sure we can hear all the words, the music, who cares? Words, you know, (laughs) quiet, quiet. Let's take out some of those. I mean, I'm joking, but not always. And so you have to have a different sense than if it's, you know, if you're a writer, you're in charge. And if you're working with other people, you are part of a team and they are looking at different aspects of things. And Um, and obviously this, uh, this, this opera that you're working on at the moment is it finished product now is it yeah i mean it was done in in 2019 it was called the monstrous child which was based on my novel which is about hell the norse goddess of the dead but there was you know i I just realized i was just thinking about it i wrote it and i realized the poor singer this was afterwards we decided not to have we weren't going to have an interval it would have meant she was on stage for 90 minutes non-stop singing and she's so agreeable when we finally said we were going to put in an interval she just went thank you (laughs) and I realized that because I'm so used to just thinking about writing and you know my vision of it that I hadn't at all you know taken into account that there's people actually physically on stage and to ask someone Someone to be in the kind of uncomfortable position she was in for 90 minutes was a, was crazy. And if she wasn't so nice, she would have just said, I'm not doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, well, if she ever needs a deputy, I know a great actor. Uh, I don't know if you can <laughs> sing, but uh, <laughs> can you sing, Charlie? <clears throat> well, I was a singer in a band for six years in the early Is 80s. Is there anything you can't do? Uh, I've always wanted to to be a tap dancer. <laughs> but that was always kind of my fantasy it as well. It's just such fun, doesn't it? But it does well, look like I'm, fun. I'm probably too old for that. Now. Well, you know, you're always welcome to give it a try if you'd like to, honestly. It's, it's absolutely mm. fine. But um, going back to kind of uh, what you've done, Charlie, uh, the Young Bond series, of course, uh, iconic. Uh, talk to me about that. How did that kind of become a thing? Because obviously everyone knows about James Bond as a, uh, an Ian Fleming kind of book, but uh, the Young Bond series, what was its... Uh, story there well the thing about james bond is that there are two families who are involved in making james bond what he is there is the fleming family ian fleming obviously the writer who originally created james bond um and his family and the organization they set up looks after the literary side of james bond but there is also the broccoli family who make the films Uh, and they have an an organization called Eon and it's a bit like two family firms that both think they invented the product (laughs) they don't always get on and the Fleming side of things they always want to keep reminding people that it started with the books and it started with Ian Fleming and they have after Ian Fleming died various other authors carried on writing Bond books and they've tried to keep that side of it alive and they felt that the time was right and it was probably on the back of Anthony Horowitz having such huge success with his Alex Ryder books. Have any of you younger people here read any of the Alex Ryder books or seen the TV series? 
Yeah, I was hugely uh, successful and still is. And, and Alex Ryder is essentially a, a teenage James Bond character. And the Fleming family thought, you know what, we actually own the actual James Bond. He was once a teenager. Let's try and get someone to write some, some books about the young James Bond and, and get a whole new generation of kids excited by James Bond. And they spoke to a number of people, including me, and to my great luck... They chose me to, to, to do the series, um, which was a kind of a dream job for me, having grown up as being a kid in the 1960s where James Bond was the biggest thing in the world and I've got three boys and I was wanting to write something for them. Uh, so the idea of being able to write the actual James Bond and to sit down and write the name's Bond, James Bond, it was a huge, huge thrill to be part of that world. So th that was a fantastic job to have. And But, but having written um, five of them, I decided not to write anymore because... I didn't want for the rest of my life to just be writing about a character that somebody else created. And, and I think it's one of the most fun parts of being a writer is making stuff up, creating things. Yeah, it, it's always nice when you're kind of, it's your invention. You just don't have to think about anything except the characters, the story, how it's going to work with the pictures. It always gets very complicated when other people are involved. It not, I mean, not necessarily, but it does, it does complicate things in a way that are not involved with the writing. And it's also not the reason why you became a writer. So you're negotiating all this, correct? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, I did have a really good experience with, with the, the Fleming estate. Um, but yeah, it's that, you know, I remember I started writing when I was about 10 years old because I got excited by that idea that you could take a pen and a piece of paper long before they'd invented computers. It's much easier now. But in those days, you take a piece of paper and a pen and by scribbling on it like that, you can create something that wasn't there before. You can make up a character that wasn't there before. You can make up a world. You can make up a whole universe. And I just thought that was a kind of of magic. So so that's what I always love is is being paid to make things up is a fantastic job. <laughs> and do you think that's a, an important thing as uh, an author for those that are budding authors here today that to have that passion from a young age? Or do you think that it's something that you can fall into later in life as well? Because you, you were eight when you first started writing your books, am I, I right? Me? Yeah. Yeah, I was eight. I mean, I mean, sort of like Charlie, you know, I had a notebook because I love stationery and I was writing like my own fairy tales, my own like combining different fairy tales. But my, my problem as an eight-year-old, which is the problem of many young writers, is that I was absolutely great at starting things and I was terrible at finishing them. And I've looked at some of my old stories and sometimes I would like break off mid-sentence, which is really embarrassing. So, you know, my, one of my big tips for anyone who's interested in writing is, you know, maybe write the end first, but just make sure that you finish what you start. It's kind of awful to have all these half-finished stories. Um, I think most people who end up writing are, are also people who love books. I've never met a writer who didn't love books and comics and libraries and just enjoyed like that physical contact with books and stories. I don't know that you have to be eight years old. Um, 
But yeah, the mad, it is wonderful to create a world and it, they become, the world becomes very real to you and the characters become incredibly real to you. Well, that's, that's an exciting thing that you're saying there. Sorry, Charlie, is that um, as an eight-year-old, you had that passion. It, actually, are there any youngsters here? I know there's a few here. That, is there anyone that would love to be an author when they grow up as well? Down here in the, in the, in the bucket hat. I like your bucket hat as well. Uh, so... We'll give you a chance in a second, actually. I should point out that if you have any questions for these two, um, any questions at all, we will be doing a QA and a um, shortly. So uh, make sure you get your questions ready and, and we'll fire them across um, to, to you both. But um, Francesca, we can't really sit here and not talk about, we've talked about the icon that is Bond, but there's a real icon that we need to address here <laughs> in the shape of horrid Henry. Um, he checks his notes. Well, no, the only reason I check that, I'll tell you why. It's because uh, I was checking that this is right. 21 million copies worldwide so far, published in 31 languages. When you first started, Horrid Henry, did you ever imagine that it would have this reaction? Um, quite honestly, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, I, the, I wrote one story, one story, and my I was asked to write an early reader. So I was interested in families and I was thinking about families, the way parents choose the good child and the bad child. So I thought I would just do this one story and I gave it to my publisher and she basically said, this isn't what we asked for. We asked for an early reader and this is too difficult. So I thought, all right. And um, but she said, but you know, I like it. So let me see if I can make it work. And then she called me back and said, can you write? She actually said four more. And I just went, what? Uh? <laughs> so she changed it to three more, which is why there are four stories in a book. No thought went into this, I have to say. So there are four stories in every book. And it was just to make it a slightly older book. Um, in fact, I warn people now, if they're writing something, make sure that you actually think this through because you are going to be, this is going to be like your format in case you end up writing more. There was no thought whatsoever. It was like my fifth or sixth book. But it's, it's incredible the, the length of time that it's kind of managed to stand for because 1994, the era I was born, was when your oh, first no. book came Shh. Right? So get this man off the <laughs> stage. That so, is horrible. But what's incredible is I've been on this uh, for 28 years and I grew up with those books. And yet there are still kids here today that are growing up with these books as well. And uh, please tell me there's no chance of them stopping anytime soon. Well, I've written a hundred stories, given that I thought I would write one. I think hundreds quite a lot. But I think we kind of live in an age where people expect things to be very quick. And Horrid Henry wasn't even in bookshops, really, um, until the fourth book, which is Horrid Henry's Knits. The independents stocked it. Um, and teachers discovered it, but it was really slow. I mean, Waterstones, I think, started putting it in on the fourth book. Right now, it's kind of like two books and you're out. So Horrid Henry, if I was writing it today, would never have happened. There's just no chance. I would have written two books. They would have had modest sales. Sorry, goodbye. Uh, and and do, you, do you both find this, that now the the market in terms of, you know, releasing and publishing a book is a lot difficult to, a lot more difficult to navigate than it would have been, say, 30 years ago? Charlie, would you say so? Yeah, I mean, very much so, because, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, 
there's a lot of other things that kids can do these days other than write a, read a book. There is. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, if computer games had been around when I was a kid, I wouldn't have read nearly so many books. I love playing computer games. And so there's all these other things that you're competing with um, and you've got to get your books out there. And the fact is you're also competing every year. There are thousands more books published. You know, as I say, I was growing up in the 1960s and kids publishing, you know, it started in the 19th century. There were a few books around. Improving books. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, it grew through. But, you know, there were probably a hundredth of the books available when I was growing up compared to how many books there are now. And there's more and more and more. And as Francesca was saying... You don't always think about this. Bookshops can't stock every book by every writer. They will choose which writers they'll have the books in the shelves and that will make a huge difference to what people buy. Um, and you're always fighting for space and it's one of the reasons why writers more and more write a series of books. Uh, and would because you every time you... I haven't Go finished. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> every, uh, you know, every time you finish one, you need to write another one so that they will keep your early ones in 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 the bookshop. So even huge authors, well, like Francesca, and it's the same with the adult market. People like Lee Child keeps writing books to make sure that bookshops keep stocking the books. And um, would you say then that it's hard? It's to better write- be a good question. Yeah, well, it is now. It's following <laughs> up from that one. Um, would you say that it's harder to um, write for younger audiences because? Because you need to keep that attention span. You need to keep them there. Is I think. It- you know, I think you've all. You know, you've always had to be a good writer to to, to keep children paying attention and involved maybe yes they had more time and perhaps a little bit more patience but you still had to write something they wanted to read and you know writing for kids is great you know even if you're an adult author I would always recommend try writing for kids because you've really got to work hard you can't be lazy you've got to put stuff in there that they want to read kids will not Children are a fantastic audience because they absolutely will not put up with lazy writing and boring writing and bad writing. I mean, they just will stop reading or they stop listening. You sometimes see adult authors reading, droning on with their books that they should have cut. And the audience is politely sitting there. And I was thinking, wow, if they were writing for kids. The kids would have all got up and left because they wouldn't have cared. Yeah, that's, a, that's a tough crowd, isn't it, really, when it's... When it's a kid. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor, Dr. Andrew Schieberman. Tim Ferriss and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and has helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now, he swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and much more in one simple drinkable habit. AG1 is great 
bang for my buck as it replaces a lot of these other supplements like a daily multivitamin minerals, pre and probiotics for my gut health, adaptogens and a greens blend literally all in one scoop of powder. I think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop. Science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics and whole food source nutrients. AG1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category. Just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition I need. Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. Where do you get your inspiration from for these stories? Because Horrid Henry, for example, was that based on a, a real child that you knew or? No, I mean, I think I realized, you know, I'm not that analytical about my own work because I'm really just thinking about the story and the characters and what does my character want and what's stopping them getting what they want. But when the book started to be more successful, I, I actually thought about this question. Like I've written lots of books why, what is it about these books? And I realized that Horrid Henry and Perfect Peter were two sides of everybody, that everybody had within themselves that kind of destructive energy of Horrid Henry and that uh, that kind of desire to be good and to get parents' approval. And that basically I'd split a normal person into two halves, um, you know, as a joke, really. Um, but what your question was... So was like, it, it, your character's based oh, on kind of... No, I mean, they're, they're based on... I mean, the situations are obviously based on real things that happen. You know, I, I, I you know, we have one son and I based some of them like Horrid Henry tricks the tooth fairy because my Josh was the youngest in his class and he was really upset because everybody was losing teeth except for him. So um, I would then ask myself a question, which is how I often write stories. So I'd say, oh, well, what would Horrid Henry do if he hadn't lost a tooth or there'd be a school fair? Well, what would Henry do if? So it's sort of asking, I was trying to take kind of really normal experiences that, that everybody has and then you know kind of put a horrid twist on it but it's he's not really based on anybody but he's based on everybody really and and that kind of sibling rivalry you know I'm the eldest of four children and I really long to be an only child and um, yes the unfortunately the curse of technology I talk about this quite freely and then on YouTube someone had filmed me and my siblings were all watching with me I mean I didn't know they said oh let's put on YouTube and see and there I was talking blithely about how much I disliked having siblings <laughs> anyone's filming it was a great it was I wished I'd been an only child and I was I was actually mortified because you know you you're not expecting that one day your words are going to come back and like whack you I I made some quick excuse oh you know I'm having fun with my audience but I really wasn't just joking I was just joking (laughs) brothers and sisters I love you all um (laughs) Charlie uh what about for yourself do you kind of draw upon real life or would you say that uh to get your inspiration or um well well you have to I mean, you know, it's got to be the kids reading or anybody reading has got to be able to relate to it and and you've got to be able to put things in. I mean, when I started writing the Young Bond books, my kids were kind of kind of that age. So I remembered what it was like to be 
yes. 12, 13 years old, and I saw what they were like. And mm. really, the basics of it hadn't changed a lot. Yeah. You know, the, the, and because my books were set in the 1930s, I, I was then writing in, in a sort of a, well, as far as most kids are concerned, a sort of fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, but, it, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, you had to make it that a, that a kid reading it could see some of their own experiences in it. Yeah, I mean, I have, what I, ha- I have a really good emotional memory about childhood. I don't necessarily have a better memory than other people about things that happened, but I really remember how I felt. And I try to use that in my writing. I mean, those emotions are really strong and really powerful and to kind of, yeah, channel, channel that. But, you know, like I was kind of at home, I was more like Horde Henry and at school, I was very much perfect Peter. Um, And, you know, so you, you do use yourself, but you're not always aware of it because when you're writing, you get kind of carried away by the story. And you also, you know, if the character's voice is really strong, they're kind of writing through you, I guess is the best way I can put that. Only if you have a really clear voice and a really clear knowledge. But sometimes I sort of feel like I'm taking dictation. You know, if, if, no, not always. I mean, that's when it's really working well. But you know what I mean? That sense of you really have the character and the voice and you just are in the situation and you can kind of let it, let it rip a bit. And what would you take? I think the big question here is what would you say uh, it takes to be a good writer? What For people that would love to get into this industry, that have the ambition to be as successful as you both, what does it take? Uh, you, you need a lot of time, a lot of patience, and a very big ego. <laughs> You've got to believe that somebody is going to want to read this thing. Now, some days you'll think, this is awful. This is rubbish. No one's going to want to read this. You've got to get past that because it, it, it takes a lot of energy to keep going to write a book. And you sort of vaguely in your head, you'll have an idea of a reader or the sort of people that read it and you're hoping that they really like it. But you've got to keep driving yourself and thinking, yeah, this is, this is okay. Somebody will want to read this. I mean, I've, I've, I've thought about this question a lot because I, I hoped that as I got more experience that I could avoid like the really de- terrible first draft. <laughs> like the first time that where you actually write a story and get beginning, middle and end, it's always terrible. I mean, there's just no way around this I've discovered. It's just <laughs> awful. But the, the secret really, if there is a secret, it's to make, is to write a better second draft and an even better third draft. And to and to be able to tell the difference, that's really important. A lot of people can't tell the difference between the bad first draft and the better second draft. Sometimes people think if they change things, it makes it better, and it doesn't always. Because sometimes you're so sick of your book that any should we bring in a dinosaur? Great idea! Oh wow! Oh, I love it already. Just because you're tired of what you've written, because you've written it so many times, and it was. When you're reading it, all what you're hearing are, are all the changes and the struggles, and then you can get kind of sidetracked by novelty. But it, it's that writing and rewriting and then writing it again. 
and having a feel that it's getting better. I'm not so conscious of a reader as, as Charlie is. I tend to write it and then think, who is my reader? Because I kind of hope my reader is everybody. Because I read everything. I mean, I love picture books. I love young children's books. I enjoy teenage books, adult books. So I sort of hope that what I write will be equally enjoyed. I never think about an age for my books. Not really. I mean, when I've written them, I'll look and think, okay, who will read this? Because well, it's parents as well that are reading these books. So it's yeah. not just the, you know, if, you, if you're sat there with your child at, at seven at night or whatever, just getting them off to sleep. Uh, tell I'm not a parent yet. That may be really late. I was going to say, bedtime. you're the child. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they, you know, it, that's, that, they've got to read that too. And you want them to be entertained as well. But it must be great for both of you that you you are inspiring young children. It mu that must be a really rewarding thing that you're inspiring them when they read your content. That must be a really lovely feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the reason I stuck with writing for younger people, having finished the, the James Bond books. Because, yeah, it was... It was it was amazing. I mean, probably even more so with uh, with Francesca, where you know kids will start reading those stories for themselves, and then maybe yeah. the first books that they've read themselves, and that's a huge it, part of a kid's is, development. It is a huge thing. I mean, I used to get I I called them the tear stained letters, <laughs> which are my favorite letters to get, and they would be from parents, and the the letters would always be, "My child never read a book." And then they found Horrid Henry, and now I, f I found him at night with a flashlight, Aww. and he was reading, and I just came. I, I love those letters. Um, <laughs> but, but I just know, I mean, it, it means everything to me because I love reading and I love books, kind of more, um, really kind of more than anything in the world. It's just my sort of the happiest place I am. And the I... <laughs> You know, the books that I read as a child mean so much to me and the authors that I read as a child. And I, I love the idea that I could introduce children to books and for them to discover, oh my God, this is, this was worth the slog. Cause for a lot of children, I mean, like I was one of those kids who learned to read very fast and my son took a long time to learn to read. And I watched how hard it was for him to learn. And I just had never thought about it. It was, it would be like saying a oh, walking was hard. I mean, it was, to me, it was automatic and I could see how hard it was for him. And that gave me a real insight into how hard it is for a lot of kids. And so to actually find something that they, that it was worth the hurdle so that there's actually something, this tangible benefit, like riding a bike, you keep falling off and you think, why am I doing this terrible thing? And then you suddenly are able to ride and you think, that's why. And so for, to find books that you love and that you enjoy is just the best. Well, it's, it's nice also for what you just said there about authors that you loved growing up and that you're really thankful for, that people are now saying that about you both as well. That's a, a really incredible and very inspirational thing. Um, now, before we throw it to you guys for questions, uh, just one one question from me. Um, what's happening career-wise at the moment for you both? What, what's coming up? What's on the horizon? Uh, Francesca? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked because here on the sofa <laughs> next to me, I, I have... What are the chances of that? <laughs> the chances of that. I just have my, my latest two books. I started a new series called um, Two Terrible Vikings, um, which are about two terrible Vikings. So it's 
Viking children, because I do like writing about bad children, I suppose, badly behaved children. And the second one is, is Two Terrible Vikings and Grunt the Berserker, because I did medieval studies in Anglo-Saxon at university, and I like historical things. So it was really imagining what it would be like to be a Viking child. So essentially, your parents are pirates and thieves, but, you know, they're still a family and they still want you to be quiet. <laughs> so I was just imagining, yeah, what life would be like if you were a Viking child, you you know, like no axes at the dinner table kind of thing. <laughs> How did you, did you have CCTV in my family? That Was, no, like, yeah, yeah, was that what yeah, it was like yeah. too? Put that sword yeah. down. <laughs> and so that you can have these kids, it gives you huge freedom because, you know, they're Vikings. So they steal boats and sail off. And there's no one who says, you can't do that. You're five years old. Get out of that boat. You think they're Vikings. What else are they going to do? And the parents want them to be really fierce. And, you know, the village, you know, the, the, the person who's held up in the village is what not to be is, you know, Freya gold hair who wants to share. And it's like, oh my God, she wants to share. Oh no, no sharing, no sharing. So, you know, I, I find that funny. So I'm, I'm doing that. And I'm also doing more work with music. Um, I've just done a, a cantata, which was on at Albra. So I do the words and Gavin Higgins, my wonderful composer does the, um, music and that'll be on at three choirs next year at Gloucestershire Cathedral and also in Wales. So Gavin and I are hoping to do a second opera, um, but it's really difficult at the moment. Um, you know, with COVID so many things got postponed and so many people, you know, had their operas canceled. So there's this massive backlog, but we still want to do, um, a second, a second project together. So we're talking to people about that. So I don't have to work alone in my lonely castle. Hey, it's very exciting. And, and just uh, quickly, where can we get those books? I, I believe all good bookshops and Waterstones. And the third one, which is Two Terrible Vikings Feast with the King, is going to be out in February. Fantastic. And, and Charlie, what about you, sir? Well, I'm glad you asked me as well, because <laughs> I've actually become a lion tamer and <laughs> I've got my lion out <laughs> No, uh, I... Um, <laughs> I've written a book for younger kids than my other ones. It's called Worst Holiday Ever, and it's about a really shy boy uh, based on myself at that age who accidentally goes on holiday with, with, with another family without his own, any of his own family. And it's a, it's a comedy book, really. Um, uh, I've also gone back in the early 90s, I wrote for crime books for adults and I've gone back to writing for adults again uh, and I have a new adult crime book called Whatever Gets You Through the Night which is out now um, yeah so but, you know I, I was going to ask Francesca about you know when I was writing the Bond books as I said my boys were um roughly the age of the people who would read the books they're all now in their 20s my oldest is nearly 30 so I felt that I couldn't write for, for kids anymore and I couldn't write certainly for teenagers because I did a teenage series called The Enemy a sort of zombie series when my kids were teenagers I kind of knew what teenagers were like and what they talk about and what they felt about the world and I, I couldn't do that again so um, I think writing for younger kids was a bit easier in terms of not having to um, really, really know that world in depth. 
Um, so I, I'm meant to be writing a sequel to both of those books, and, and I haven't started either. <laughs> uh, mainly because I'm working on a huge TV project. Oh, wow. I which I can't, can't talk about. Which I can't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> NDAs and all of that. Well, thank you very much, guys. Let's bring it over to you then. Um, tell me, who's got some questions? Uh, out of all your characters that you've created, who's your like, favourite to write for or your one you most enjoy? I mean, I love, I love writing Horrid Henry because he makes me laugh so much because he's just never thinks about the consequences of his actions and he can be so rude and unpleasant. And so it's really fun, you know, him saying no thank you to a present. So it sort of allows all the anarchy in me kind of full flow. So I like characters that make me laugh and I do laugh out loud a lot when I write. I mean, I'm, I'm in a slightly... Well, a different position in that I've written lots of characters which I have then performed <laughs> uh, in comedy shows. So th th those have probably been in terms of writing for somebody that you're going, something that you're going to enjoy. It, it probably would be one of those characters because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how to make it as much fun and, and funny as possible. So, you know, writing for a character like Swiss Tony being able to say outrageous things or the mad painter and to come up with some madness for him or, or, or for Ted and Ralph to, to um, again, to channel my shyness. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's been great for me to be able to, to perform as well. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, I, we've got one just down the front here. We've got five minutes left. So if anyone else has more, then. Hi, yeah, I was just wondering um, with threats and violence and sometimes even death, how far can you take it for the younger audiences, not so much adults? And are there times when you think, oh, I've taken that too far and perhaps dial back the scene and think, I can't kill this character or this villain can't die quite so horribly? Well, the, you know, the thing about writing and, and particularly writing for kids, there is not a, a set of rules um, and things change. Um, you know, when I started writing my young James Bond books, I would, because I hadn't written for young people before, I would, as I finished a chapter, I would read it out to my boys at night, which is why the books are so incredibly violent. <laughs> <laughs> because they would demand more and more killings and death uh, and outrageous things happening all the time. So, you know, I'd be reading away and I'd introduce the villain and I'd read a couple of paragraphs. They'd go, kill him! <laughs> I say, I can't kill him now. He's got to go here and do that and set up all these plots. No, 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 I don't like him. You're the writer. You can do what you like. Kill him. <laughs> Push him off a cliff and make sure he hits every rock on the way down. Um, make it graphic. Yeah, you know, if, if, if my kids had been fully in charge, it would have just been one killing after another, each one more horrific than the one before. Um, but, you know, you, you, you have to set things within a moral framework without that being overt and without wanting to give messages, overt messages to kids, you, you know, it, and, what, and actually what I tried to do in, in the Young Bond books is that some good people got hurt and killed as well as bad and to try and actually encourage some empathy in kids to realise that violence is painful and that, you know, death is final. So, you know, you can explore a lot through telling what on the surface 
appears to just be a, a fun adventure. And you can also suggest things like Horrid Henry gives the impression of huge wickedness. But if you actually look at what he does, he doesn't do anything that every single person in this room hasn't done. Who hasn't called their siblings a name or pinched them or said, I'm not doing it and I hate you. Everybody. But you can kind of suggest, you know, horrible things that have happened. And I know a number of kids who used to get around their parents by, you know, they do something awful and they say, oh, well, Henry, Henry did it, which was just a complete lie. Um, Cause then the parents would challenge me and I'd say, what book? <laughs> what book is that from? I said, I'm afraid your child's having you on. Um, you, you, that's a hundred stories though. They may not have read all hundred. Well, then more fool them. <laughs> also, you're, you're backing up your theory of, um, you know, your, your relationship with your brothers and sisters there saying that you pinch and kick them and, you know. Yeah. Hopefully that one's not filmed. Um, <laughs> but yes, there, there's time for one more question. Does anyone have a question? There's a girl at the back with a hat who's very persistent. Here. So Sorry, thank you. Do you ever think in the mindset of your characters to get more ideas for the book? What, imagine that you're them and thinking what, what they might do? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what, as a writer, you do that all the time. You really do have to put yourself in the mindset of of the character and see the world through their eyes. Um, so, yeah, my, my most recent book for younger kids, Worst Holiday Ever, I did put myself into the mind of being a 12-year-old boy again and try to remember what it was like then and how that world, as Francesca said, how the world felt. You have to understand the, the feelings of people and to do that, yeah, very much. And when I'm writing, I'll do all the voices for the characters, sometimes in my head, sometimes out loud, to get the dialogue right and to get the way that they, they think. So I think it's an important part is, is to... Is to yes to get inside the minds and and in fact that's one of the great things you can get out of a book that you can't get out of any other form of of entertainment is to be in right inside the mind of a character and to go places that you never thought that you would go and to actually be all those different people, um, which is one of the huge joys of reading. I mean, I love reading about people that I don't know who live in countries I've never been to, who live in a time that I've never lived in. I mean, it is like a form of time travel or person travel or literally being able to move around the world. It, it's fantastic and freeing. Um, but it's also being honest about those emotions. I think a lot of adults, because being a child, a lot about being a child is being powerless. You know, you, you are always being told what to do. And I think for adults, they don't want to remember those feelings of, of not having control. And so I think they run away from those feelings. Um, and so when they see their child upset, a lot of parents can go, oh, there's nothing to be upset about. And they're really denying those upset and hurt feelings um, because they don't want to look at them. And I think, you know, as a writer and you're writing for, for children, you have to be, you have to allow yourself to feel those emotions, um, which 
are are there in all of us. It's just a question of whether you're kind of prepared to to remember that. Like you're saying about being very shy. You know, it's not a great feeling to remember feeling so awkward and uncomfortable. But if that's the character you're writing, you have to go with it. You absolutely have to go with it. Well, on that note, uh, we are going to have to go in general. But um, sadly, we could sit here and, and listen all day. But uh, it's been an absolute honour. Please give a big round of applause to Francesca Simon and Charlie Higson. Thanks to Charlie Higson and Francesca Simon for that conversation recorded at last year's Carfest on the author stage. And thank you to you for listening. And if you'd like to come for similar and much more of it, then come to this year's Carfest. Check it out, carfest.org 2023 over the August bank holiday weekend, August 25, 26 and 27. I would love to see you there.